When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B34 Keepers of the Fire The Parthian Empire was not an empire in decline. Sure, it was riven by civil war and threatened by hostile powers, but, I mean, the Parthians called that Tuesday. Like any other empire, they had strong kings and weak kings, conquests and setbacks. But to all indications, the current king, Artabanus V, was one of the strong ones certainly more Trajan than Romulus Augustulus, which is why it's so surprising that he'd be the king to oversee his empire's fall. In contrast to the empires that bracketed it in time, the Macedonian Seleucids and the Persian Sassanids, the Parthian Empire is known for its relative consistency. Unlike the Romans, always driven to expand, the Parthians established a quasi-stable set of frontiers, then basically settled in for the long haul. Don't get me wrong, they were far from pacifists, and their expansion was halted by strong enemies and geographic barriers more than any conscious planning. But on the flip side, the Parthians never considered themselves a unique culture with a divine destiny to shed the light of civilization on the world. The Parthian credo was always a bit more humble and a bit more practical. As I've already covered, Parthia was ruled by a royal family hailing from a Central Asian tribe called the Parni. They were exceptional warriors, and over time became skilled in agriculture and trade, but the Parni also knew their limitations. In matters of culture, they recognized the superiority, or at least the durability, of the Greek and Persian influences in the lands they conquered. And, to their credit, they chose to embrace what they knew they couldn't fight. Though Arsaces was their founding father, the greatest kings the Parthians produced were Mithridates I and II. 
The first took the Parthians from kingdom to empire, while the second expanded that empire to its greatest extent. By 113 BC, all former Seleucid territories east of the Euphrates were firmly in Parthian hands. But in another sense, the lands were no more Parthian than they'd been Seleucid or Persian or even Assyrian, or than most Roman territories were truly Roman. Sure, the Parthians gave the empire its new ruling strata, occupied the major power centers, and founded a few new cities. But they'd always remain a fraction of the overall population. Every tribe who'd come through the region, from the Sumerians to the Macedonians, had left some kind of legacy. A population, a language, a religion, or even a way of life. As the latest Near Eastern power, the Parthians had to manage a pretty complex mix. In some cases, they were absorbing whole kingdoms, with histories and legacies all their own. We've already touched on a few Parthian kingdoms, including Hatra and Adiabene, but this episode I wanted to focus on three important southern kingdoms. We know they were important because they were the only ones the Parthians allowed to mint their own coinage. And now's a great time to refer to the new map I posted on the Ancient World website. The first kingdom I want to cover is Cherasina or Messina, located on the Persian Gulf with its capital at Cherax. We discussed Cherasina a bit back in episode B23. To refresh your memory, it was founded by Alexander the Great, then refounded by Antiochus IV, before declaring independence in 141 BC under a local satrap named Hispaeosanes. Hispaeosanes went on to expand the kingdom to take in both Babylon and Tylos, modern Bahrain. When he became ill and died in 124 BC, Cherasina passed to his son, Apodakos. Three years later, the kingdom was conquered by Mithridates II, and Cherasina became a Parthian vassal. Apodakos and his heirs were kept in power, and continued to mint coins featuring their own royal line. Actually, it took another 70 years before Cherasene coins even began to adopt a Parthian style, which to me does not exactly scream dominant centralized rule. In 116 AD, the Cherasene king Athambelus briefly submitted to Trajan, and a later king, Pacorus, won a brief independence. But there was one serious problem. By this time, Cherax had become a critical nexus for the transshipment of goods between India and the Near East. In fact, the volume of goods was large enough to supply a yearly Indian trade fair, which was held in the city of Batane near Edessa. From Cherax, Indian goods also traveled overland via Petra to the Red Sea in Egypt and via the Euphrates and Palmyra to the Mediterranean. So, long story short, Indian trade was way too lucrative to just let the kingdom go. In 150 AD, the Parthian king Vologases III defeated the Cherasene king Mithridates I and effectively annexed the territory. 
The local dynasty lingered on, but in a drastically weakened state. By the time of our story, 217 AD, the latest Cherusene king was named Abenergeus. Just east of Cherusena lay the kingdom of Elemius, sometimes also known as Khuzestan or Susiana. And I just have to go off on Elemius for a bit. Okay, so first off, the kingdom's borders were pretty consistent with the core territories of ancient Elam. Yes, the same Elam I discussed in my very first podcast episode as one of the first civilizations to enter the world stage around 3000 BC. And yes, the same Elam that was utterly destroyed by the Neo-Assyrian king Ashurbanipal in 647 BC. Except, well, they weren't destroyed, because the name Elemius comes from Elam, and not only because of its location. In the time of Alexander the Great, the Elemians were still worshipping the ancient gods of Assyria and Babylonia, likely in combination with traditional Elamite gods, which suggests the Elemians may have been direct descendants of the ancient Elamites. Which is cool, but that's just the start. In the 3rd century BC, Elemius came under Seleucid domination. And when Antiochus the Great invaded Greece in 192 BC, he took Elemian archers on camelback. After the Battle of Magnesia, when Antiochus was forced to pay tribute to Rome, he tried to plunder the gold and silver from the Elemian Temple of Bel. The Elemians were understandably upset, and actually ended up killing him. So yeah, the Elemians killed Antiochus the Great. And when his son, Antiochus IV, tried something similar at the temple of Artemis Nanaya, the Elemians killed him too. Dude, do not touch the Elemian temples, okay? In 147 BC, the Elemians declared independence under a king named Camnazcaris I. They also recaptured the city of Susa and used its mint to strike their own coinage. But when the Parthians came calling a few years later, the Elemians allied themselves with the Seleucid king Demetrius II, which may have been a case of the devil you know. Either way, the Seleucids were rapidly losing territory to the Parthians, and Demetrius was committed to holding on to what he could. That being the case, when Hispaeosines of Cherax declared independence, Demetrius sent the Elemians to quash the revolt. Which was kind of awkward, since Elemius had just declared their own independence. But who knows, there may have been a local rivalry, or maybe the Elemians just wanted to expand their territory. Either way, the Elemian invasion did not go well. Not only were they soundly beaten, but at the same time, the Parthian king Mithridates I invaded their kingdom which is how Elemius became a vassal of the Parthian Empire, and how the ancient city of Susa, capital of the Elamites, the Persians, and the Elemians, became one of several new Parthian capitals. 
A few decades later, after the death of Mithridates II, the Elemians broke free of Parthian control. After retaking the city of Seleucia on the Hedophon, they resumed minting coins of their own royal line, beginning with Camnascaris III in 82 BC. Nearly two decades later, his son, Camnascaris IV, sent gifts to Pompey the Great, possibly hoping for Roman help against the Parthians. Over a century later, in 45 AD, the Elemians recaptured Susa from the Parthian king Vardanis I. But soon after this victory, their royal line seemed to peter out. It's possible it was usurped by a new ruling dynasty, descended from a local high priest of Belmarduk. Either way, over the decades that followed, independent Elemius returned to Parthian control. At the time of our story, 217 AD, the latest Elemian king was named Orodes. Which brings us to the next kingdom over, known as Fars, Pars, or Persis. This kingdom also had Elamite connections, in particular the region around the city of Anshan. After Ashurbanipal's devastation of Elam in 647 BC, Anshan was captured by an Aryan tribe from the Zagros Mountains called the Persians. Over the next few decades, Persian rulers styled themselves as kings of Anshan, until a ruler named Cyrus decided to expand their horizons. When Cyrus conquered the Medes and captured Ecbatana, its treasures were taken to Anshan. And when he built the new Persian capital of Pasargadai, it was only a few dozen miles from Anshan. These actions cemented Fars, or Persis, as center of the Persian world. Like Italy under Rome, Fars was never considered a conquered territory, and was never compelled to pay tribute. And, despite the Persian Empire's multicultural veneer, Persians from Fars always maintained a privileged status. Of course, all that changed with the Macedonian conquest, when Fars became just another Seleucid territory. But, for whatever reason, they were given one concession. While wealthy provinces were usually reserved for Macedonians, Fars was granted a Persian ruler, a Zoroastrian priest from the city of Stalker named Bagadates I. While his name meant gift of the gods, he took power in the role of Frataraka, or keeper of the fire. The title became hereditary, and the city of Stalker, only three miles from Persepolis, became the de facto capital of Fars. In the years that followed, Fars took a similar path to neighboring Alemius, breaking free of Seleucid control, then allying with the Seleucids in the face of Parthian aggression. And, just like Alemius, Fars eventually fell to the Parthians, with the Frataracas kept on as client kings. But regardless of who they answered to, the priest-kings of Fars always considered themselves the standard-bearers of Persian culture. And, particularly in their current role, a main element was their religion. 
the Achaemenids had always billed themselves as hardcore Zoroastrians, followers of the prophet Zarathustra and worshippers of Ahura Mazda. But when it came right down to it, they were never strictly monotheists. Like the Capitoline Triad or even the Christian Trinity, Ahura Mazda was sometimes worshipped alongside two other figures. The first was Mithra, the Aryan god of contracts, covenants, and oaths. And I'm not going to get into his possible connection to either the Vedic Mitra or Roman Mithras, because the jury is apparently still out. For the moment, I want to focus on the second figure, Anahita. Anahita was the Aryan goddess of fertility, healing, and wisdom. And sometime after entering Fars, she also became linked with Ishtar, the Mesopotamian goddess of fertility, sex, and war. Artaxerxes II built her a temple in Ekbatana and even included her in his royal inscriptions. But her cult remained popular down through Parthian times, in the territories of Elemius, Lydia, Armenia, the Caucasian kingdoms, and Fars. And particularly in Fars, it was her martial aspects that were highlighted. In the city of Estakar, the temple of Anahida was overseen by a line of high priests. Sometime around 205 AD, a high priest named Pabag, or Papak, managed to overthrow the latest Zoroastrian Frataraka, a man named Gozir. The act elevated Pabag to priest-king of Fars, and his family became wardens of the chief Zoroastrian fire temple. Which didn't mean they gave up their devotion to Anahita, just that they decided to play for bigger stakes. Pabag's father, or possibly father-in-law, was named Sasan, which means, yes, we're talking about the future Sasanid Empire. And speaking of family, Pabag also had two sons. The elder was named Shapur, which basically means son of the king. The younger was named after the Achaemenid king Artaxerxes, or in Middle Persian, Artashir. And when Pabog named Shapur is designated heir, young Ardashir was less than pleased. Pabog tried to appease his son by making him Argbad, or castle ruler, in the eastern city of Darabgird, the city of Darius. But when Pabog died a few years later, young Ardashir went into rebellion. He based himself in the deep south where he built a castle on a high bluff overlooking a major road. The castle was named Kala Doktar, the Maiden Castle, and it was dedicated to the goddess Anahita. His older brother Shapur based himself in Persepolis, the former stronghold of a Caymanid power. But before the two could meet in battle, Shapur was accidentally killed when the ceiling of his palace collapsed, which meant around 211 AD, the same year Caracalla became sole Roman emperor, the rebel prince Ardashir became the priest-king of Fars. 
Over the next few years, he spent most of his time crushing local rivals and building up his army. But then, sometime in 216, Ardashir likely received a royal dispatch from the Parthian king Artabanus V. The message would have brought news of the Red Wedding in Ecbatana and a summons to bring his forces to join a retaliatory campaign. What did Ardashir do? Well, we really don't know. There's a tradition, likely apocryphal, that young Ardashir spent time in Artabanus's court, in which case you might expect there'd be some bonds of loyalty. But there's no record of Ardashir ever responding to such a message, let alone sending a levy of Persian troops. If he would have, believe me, there'd be a relief on some mountainside bragging about his great victory. No, the odds are that Artabanus's request went unanswered, which may have begun the fraying of relations between Fars and the Parthian Empire. Apart from the possible holdout of Fars, all Parthian territories and subkingdoms very likely sent troops to join the great king's army at Ecbatana. We know the Elemians showed up, since Herodian noted the presence of those mail-clad soldiers who throw spears from camelback. Of course, the backbone of the Parthian army were its cataphracts, heavy cavalry armed with lances, with both man and horse covered in mailed armor. So you're not too wrong picturing them as stereotypical medieval knights. But the bulk of the army were the Parthian horse archers, able to shoot in any direction with deadly accuracy, even while riding at full speed. This included the famous Parthian shot, swiveling to shoot your pursuers as you fled the field of battle. In the summer of 217 AD, Artabanus set off west with his army. His first target was Nisibis, held captive by Rome for half a century and now capital of Roman Mesopotamia. And it was on the march to Nisibis that Artabanus received his first Roman embassy. The first surprise came right off the bat, since the embassy was sent by a new Roman emperor named Marcus Apelius Severus Macrinus Augustus. It carried the news that Caracalla, the perpetrator of the atrocity at Ecbatana, was dead, and that Macrinus hoped that Artabanus's anger might die with him. The second surprise was that Artabanus's brother, the Armenian king Khosrov I, had died in Caracalla's hands. But Macrinus signaled his intention to install his son, Tiridates II, as the new Armenian king. Macrinus also offered to free the boy's mother, return all Armenian plunder, and restore Armenian territories currently occupied by Rome. This last part was actually a bit self-serving. In the king's absence, Rome had been forced to secure the Caucasian passes, something they usually paid the Armenians to do. Artabanus gave a steely response. 
that he might consider abandoning his campaign if the Romans also, quote, built up the forts and demolished cities, abandoned Mesopotamia entirely, and offered satisfaction in general, but particularly for the damage to the royal tombs. Meaning, of course, Caracalla's desecration of the royal necropolis at Arbella. The counterproposal was likely DOA, but it's not clear Macrinus even had time to think it over. During his three odd months in power, the new emperor had spent most of his time trying to legitimize his elevation. Things had gotten off to a shaky start when he'd assumed his royal titles before having them conferred by the Senate. Macrinus had gained some traction by nominating an eastern senator named Aurelianus to be his Caesar, then shot himself in the foot around a month later when he'd had Aurelianus killed and replaced him with his own nine-year-old son, Diadumenian. From this point on, the Senate was a lost cause, and everything depended on keeping the army on his side. Since then, Macrinus had been continuing the military build-up while trying to avert the coming Parthian invasion. But by the time he'd sent his embassy, Artabanus was already moving. Macrinus had set out with his legions from Antioch, and somewhere east of Nisibis, the two armies met. Each side picked an appropriate spot, erected their camps, and prepared themselves for battle. According to Herodian, the next morning, Artabanus appeared at sunrise with his vast army. When they had saluted the sun, as was their custom, the barbarians, with a deafening cheer, charged the Roman line, firing their arrows and whipping on their horses. Herodian drags out a few standard tropes, the Parthians being useless once deprived of their horses, the clear advantage of Roman infantry at close quarters, etc. But he also describes a battle lasting three full days, from dawn till dusk. He reports that so great was the number of slaughtered men and animals that the entire plain was covered with the dead, and bodies were piled up in huge mounds. As a result, the soldiers were hampered in their attacks. They could not see each other for the high and impassable wall of bodies between them. Prevented by this barrier from making contact, each side withdrew to its own camp. It was, in short, all very gruesome and Game of Thronesy. Dio's account is more fragmented, but it hints at Macrinus abandoning the field and his troops becoming dejected and eventually overcome. Both accounts agree that in the end, Macrinus offered Artabanus an enormous bribe to withdraw from Roman territory. The Parthian king, satisfied that honor had been restored and Caracalla was dead, accepted the offer. But Dio's fragmented account hints at another possibility. Macrinus may have been forced to abandon the province of Mesopotamia and even possibly some cities in Roman Syria. Macrinus had portrayed the conflict to the Senate in a far more favorable light. 
but the soldiers he commanded knew the truth. And they didn't blame their lax discipline under the Severans or the superior leadership or forces of the Parthian king. No, they blamed a much simpler target, the new Roman emperor, Macrinus. Settling back into his imperial quarters in Antioch, Macrinus continued installing loyal allies in positions of power back in Rome. His choice for city prefect, his one-time colleague Adventus, proved so horribly inept that Macrinus was forced to replace him with an old severin hand, which might have been okay as a one-off, but his picks for proconsuls and praetorian prefects continued pretty much in the same vein. But again, Macrinus knew the Senate could be flouted as long as the army remained loyal. In the fall of 217 AD, Macrinus made two really horrible decisions. He probably had good reasons for both, but it didn't really matter. The first was an announcement that all soldiers who'd served under Caracalla would retain their special pay and privileges, i.e. he wasn't suicidal, but anyone joining the legions from now on would get the lower pay and benefits granted by Septimius Severus, which were still very generous, but, you know, it's all relative. The second horrible decision was keeping his army intact to winter in Syria, instead of dispersing them to their legionary camps which may have just been insurance in case the Parthian peace didn't hold, but which also meant that powerful military men, who could see which direction the wind was blowing, had a perfect opportunity to conspire. Macrinus had basically been hired for one job, to either avert the war with Parthia or lead the Romans to victory. Now that he'd utterly failed on both counts, and was making noises about reducing pay, maybe it was time to consider other options. A severin would be lovely, but the line was pretty thin. In fact, Macrinus was holding the remaining members in gilded captivity in nearby Emesa. Maybe it was time to pay them a visit and see if any were cutting an imperial profile or, at the very least, could be of service to the legions. <laughs> 